Hey, engine professionals, machinists, enthusiasts, welcome to the Engine Professional Podcast. My name is Steve Fox, and you've already heard from my counterpart, Chuck Lynch, there with the introduction. Chuck, we're back at it again here with episode five. A couple things have happened since then. How was your Thanksgiving? Thanksgiving was good. Thanksgiving was quiet. Uh, We gave everybody an opportunity to kind of enjoy their immediate families and didn't get together in a big huddle. Yeah, pretty much the same up here. You know, we just kind of, uh, kind of my family, and uh, but it was fun. We had a good time, and it was good to, uh, good to be with them. But you know, you wish you wanted to be with everybody else. But I'm sure Christmas and New Year's will be the same. But it is what it is, and we're just working through it. No doubt, no doubt. R and R is good time anyway. Uh, we all need a little bit of that. I know this year has definitely uh, challenged us, but. It makes you reflect on how good you have had it in the past. Exactly. Well, we'll get rolling with this uh, episode here. Uh, One thing we'd like to do is kind of introduce everybody to the upcoming in January. There's going to be a engine performance expo that is going to be, uh, I guess the main sponsor you'd call it would be Rattler. I know we're a sponsor of that program as are many others. Uh, but that is happening uh, January 7th through the 9th. Um, kind of an online event, isn't it, Chuck? It is. Uh, they've, they will have live video. Um, they've put together a, a pretty big list of uh, notable speakers. It'll be a lot of good technical presentations. Uh, engine machine shops uh, around the country have been involved in this in some pre-recording and uh, again there are going to be a lot of uh, live stream demos and presentations as well yeah their speaker lineup is pretty good you know i'll just name a couple of them here they got ben strader uh billy godbold uh darren morgan doug yates is going to talk uh they're actually got ed pink on there uh john kazi uh keith jones and lake speed jr uh and randy neal uh, from CWT, but also uh, our own director of tech services, Chuck Lynch, is going to be talking. That's the case. Yeah, it feels great to be a, a part of this. Uh, that's a pretty tall order of uh, people to speak with. And, you know, Ed Keebler, uh, John Callies, it's just, you know, the ones that you mentioned, uh, what a lineup. Pretty impressive. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good lineup, um, and I believe it's three days there, January 7th through the 9th, and you can register uh, for this event. I don't think there's a cost for it, right, Chuck? It's free? It's free. It's free. Everybody likes free. And you can register at engineperformanceexpo.com. Uh, that, again, is engineperformanceexpo.com, and it's a three-day event pretty much all day, if I remember correctly, looking at the schedule. Right, yeah, they've got that thing lined up uh, pretty heavy, you know, just a change over hour to hour. Uh, this is actually going to be down at Chris Straub's place in Piney Flats, Tennessee, where they're going to be doing the live stream. So, yeah, definitely looking forward to that. 
Yeah, should be a lot of fun, and everybody should be able to take something from that event um, uh, back to their shop and use in their shop, or at least the information will be very technical. So moving on, uh, we've got a new uh, segment that we want to introduce to everybody, and that is where we're going to talk about a tech bulletin that we have wrote from the AERA tech department. We write probably, oh, I'd say anywhere from 30 to 40 bulletins a year. Uh, and we put them in our, our process pro program. And as Chuck and I were discussing uh, on past episodes, trying to get ready for this, we'd like to introduce some of these bulletins just to inform some of our listeners of what, what kind of information we offer, but as well, just keep everybody informed on what's going on. So our first bulletin that we're going to do here is actually talking about piston to rod assembly for the GM66 Duramax engines. All right. So the uh, the Duramax rods are not physically marked uh, for an assembly direction. Uh, marking them with a pen type marker uh, or something at disassembly is suggested for easier assembly. Uh, information provided by General Motors for assembly uh, references the big end chamfer. So that's pretty common. You'll see with a lot of uh, connecting rods where the chamfer has to go to the crankshaft radius. Uh, so again, we've got illustrations that uh, we've put in in the bulletin and TB2819 for reference is uh, you know the, a bulletin about the 66 Duramax. Yeah, and one thing that they do recommend that I noticed on the bottom there was uh, to replace the connecting rod bolts during engine assembly anytime they've been removed, as these seem to be a one-time use bolt. I'd say that's starting to become more common, Chuck, as we start to uh, take more calls on the tech line that replacing bolts are becoming more and more common on these engines nowadays. It is very true. Uh, the nice thing is when you find some documentation that does say to replace it uh it's a challenge you know we take this call all the time on the line so is that a torque to yield well just because it's torque plus angle does not mean it's torque to yield uh angle tightening is more repeatable than just torque tightening uh 90 degrees is always 90 degrees 110 degrees is 110 degrees so that said when we do see these uh bulletins like this and they have information that it is a torque to yield and you do need to replace that it's nice to have that information available that sounds like a future podcast topic <laughs> torque to yield torque to angle what's the difference <laughs> it's a challenge for sure <laughs> yeah so that's something we want to introduce uh, uh we'll be doing that one bulletin every episode just to try to give everybody some uh some technical information uh beyond what the, the topic of the podcast is about, which that bulletin really leads into what we're talking about today, which is measure, measure twice, cut once. And this really is for during disassembly uh, to measure everything and how important that is to make notes or jot information down when you're disassembling something. We've actually had this come up quite a bit over our tech line here in the last couple of weeks. 
uh, one of the things is, is all customers like to help us out and try to save some money by taking things apart ahead of time, but that's not necessarily the case all the time. Oh, absolutely. Especially when you're talking overhead camshaft, uh, and we do understand sometimes you have to take the cams out to even get the head bolts out. But, uh, as you said earlier, that people think they're going to try to help out by taking those parts out and then they lose orientation. And then now the machinist is trying to figure out how to fix that problem on top of being a machinist and correct the issue with the cylinder head. Yeah. That's uh, sometimes you think you're like, man, I, I wish they wouldn't have took it apart. You know, <laughs> at least you could take photos or something, make some notes, but um, it just, adds you know some guys add that to the end of the end of the bill and it just costs that guy more and he thinks he was actually helping out um so yeah this this episode we're just going to kind of keep track of taking measurements give you some ideas of things that you should look out for uh and take notes as you're taking things apart doing that during disassembly can save you tons of time uh, when you're trying to do the reassembly of the engine you know five minutes of making notes at the beginning can save you anywhere from 30 to 45 minutes trying to research and find the information that you need uh, when you're going back to assembly. One of those areas, Chuck, I think is um, uh, identifying code numbers, alphanumerical, serial, CPL, and arrangement numbers. That's good information to get if a gentleman or your customer brings in a, a diesel application, you know, like CPL and arrangement numbers are always good for like, the, I think the Caterpillars use those quite a bit. Uh, engine serial numbers on Cummins, uh, trying to get as much information as you can from your customer is, is huge. Yeah, for sure. Uh, as you mentioned, the diesel world is definitely driven more to the application, where in the automotive world, uh, an engine may fit multiple applications, but say Cummins, well, they may have a a venture with Iveco or maybe it's in a case IH tractor or something of that nature. And they're, they're more specific to the application. So that when, when we take the, the tech calls on the tech line, typically the very first thing, Hey, we need your member ID number. Uh, there's good reason for that because we're trying to, we capture all that data. We can query out that data. We can see, you know, maybe how many times that member's called, but we can see, what that member was working on and we save that information and may help us answer a question in the future. But then we start looking for identifying information, casting numbers, again, alphanumerical codes, uh, CPL serial number. That's why we ask those questions. It helps us dig deeper and give you the correct information for your application if it needs be. Yeah, kind of an example of that is like sometimes we'll get some calls like on a on a Honda two liter. Um, I got a Honda two liter engine. I'm looking for head specs. Well, what Honda two liter you got? You know, kind of getting the engine code helps that. What model it is, the year range, um, all that information helps us, and it will help you when you're ordering parts, trying to get the right information and right right parts and specifications to that member. Absolutely. Uh, you can't hardly go to a parts counter and not have that info. It's going to be the same when you're looking for specifications. No, and you go to some of them, they want to 
Is it a two door, four door? What color is it? You know. <laughs> Do you have fuzzy dice in your mirror? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, we won't go there, Chuck. <laughs> <laughs> so we're just kind of going to give you some ideas uh, that we've come up with doing research for this episode. We came up with a list for each component, kind of what we think you should look out for. So obviously we'll start at the top and we'll start with cylinder heads. Right. You know, nine out of 10 calls that we take are probably a cylinder head, to be honest. And uh, as we mentioned uh, in some of our meetings recently, that about five out of 10 calls are diesel. Mm -hmm. So uh, it, big changes. So yeah, cylinder heads, uh, valve stem height, be consistent. Am I measuring this with or without a spring gem? You, you wouldn't give a whole lot of consideration to that 20 years ago, but now even cast iron heads have top out valve stem seals or they have some kind of spring seat. Aluminum heads, it's a must. Uh, if you don't have a spring seat or valve stem seal, top hat style that supports the spring, it's just going to drill a hole through the head. So uh, be consistent in your measurement process. And speaking of the diesels, you know, that, that would be... Uh, relate to valve recession or valve protrusion as well. Uh, measure that during disassembly as well. Correct. And we do take a number of calls. Uh, it's just a, it's a change where some shops that have never worked on diesels are starting to work on diesels, and, and they ask that question, well, what's the installed stem height? And just to help everyone, that's typically not published in the diesel world. Is it important? Well, there's hydraulic lifters some so sometimes you don't have valve train adjustment uh but it's just not typically ready available but recession is extremely important in the diesel world and it usually is the published specification so if you ask us for installed stem height we're more than likely going to not have that but we are going to give you the uh recession or valve head protrusion sometimes you have a a head that protrudes and one that's below, maybe both are above. Uh, so yeah, it's important to know, Hey, the diesel world is different than the gas engine world. Yeah. And another thing to pay attention to are your valve spring differences. <clears throat> Excuse me. Sometimes they're color coded with a, uh, like a line down the side, you know, green or pink or orange or yellow. Um, just pay attention which one is intake and which one is exhaust. Even even the different heights of the springs uh, will be able to identify where it goes when you're going back to assembly. And something that you used to see more in some of the diesel uh, applications or industrial is the variable uh, or the progressive wind rates. So maybe the the coils are at a different distance from one one another from one end of the spring to the other. So keep an, keep an eye on that. Make sure you don't get the springs upside down. Uh, and then you get into, there's so many spring designs out there uh, that you really need to take a look at the shape of the wire. And what I mean is if you, so you get a, a tapered spring, a beehive uh, spring, there's, there's some differences that you, may not recognize with just a quick look oh well, that's a beehive spring well maybe not and then if you take a look at the at the shape of the wire if you take a your you know a caliper and measure you may find that say that wire is egg-shaped ovate wire it could be 90 thousandths tall 
and 120 thousandths wide, how you're looking at the wire. Things like that are important. That way, if you have to replace a spring, okay, I, I did get the right replacement. Uh, internal, external dampers. Uh, I kind of thought that was a thing of the past, and here we are. We're seeing those again. Uh, you know, Chrysler Hemi, this is a good example. External dampers with a, a seat. The spring snaps into that, locks into place. Uh, they've even done some plastic ones, which really makes you scratch your head. But hey, materials, is it's a constantly evolving thing. Um, so I mentioned that about uh, approaches with machining often. Hey, it didn't work 12 years ago, but stuff changes. So uh, maybe it's just timing. So try <laughs> it again. So I guess that's maybe some of the philosophy with the, the, the plastic dampers and things. It's amazing how we thought something 12, 15 years ago wouldn't wouldn't come, but then it's like coming around full circle again, you know? Right. It has gone full circle with a lot of things, getting a little off topic, but uh, floating piston pins. Yeah. With powder metal rods, you know, there's not that mass of interference that keeps the pin in place. So uh, now you're seeing everything's full floating again. So back to, back to the uh, measure twice <laughs> one thing you know the valve guides will always fail uh not always you know but you'll get some guides that need to be replacing <clears throat> so when you're doing that always measure we always did it anyway and and we would just verify with aera when the, in the shop i was working at, as if we had the right spec or not but always measure your guide height uh, you want to know what to put that guide height back uh during assembly as well as the orientation, you know, top and bottom. Is there a little taper to that? You know, where the seal goes, that type of thing. You know, you just want to make sure you install that guide correctly. Right. Yeah. Sometimes there's on the inside uh, of the guide, there will be a, a machined area, like a carbon relief. Uh, and also that can give you greater amount of thermal expansion so that if that guide protrudes into the combustion chamber area, uh, it's going to see more heat. That's the area that the, of the valve that's going to be growing more because of thermal expansion. So you might see some clearance area in there. Definitely need to make sure you pay attention to that. And guide height, uh, why is that so important? Well, it may be that it applies the proper load on the valve stem seal, so, so especially like a top hat seal. So they're going to be a very static dimension. So you need to make sure that the guide is in contact with the seal and puts a little bit of load because the seals seals on the top of the guide as well as it works against the valve stem. And uh, if you have the guide protruding too much, well, maybe you distort the seal and it's not going to work. If you don't have any interference at all, you may suck oil under the guide or under the seal, under that top hat seal. It's not going to have that sealing omelet against the top of the guide. So it may consume oil because the guide is installed too short. So uh, it seems simple, but there's a lot of thought going into that. And then if you have a guide that's too high and you have, say you put an aftermarket camshaft in or the wrong part number camshaft, and you don't have clearance between the your retainer and the top of your guide. Well, that's a mechanical crash there. So <laughs> you're definitely tear stuff up. Yeah, it's very important to make sure that guide is at the right height. 
when you're going back to assembly for sure. Another thing that we get into some is <clears throat> is on the overhead cam engines. Uh, more and more OEs, uh, as much as we think they would, they don't seem to indicate where the caps go upon installation. So pay attention when you're disassembling those, you know, just mark them. Uh, we always punched them. Uh, we had a number of punch that we would use, but some guys can scribe it um, with just a, uh, what do they call those, Chuck? Like a metal scribe, I guess. Right, the little pencil engravers. Yeah, that's the word I was looking for. Okay. Buy them anywhere, Amazon, probably 30 bucks. Yeah, know, pretty uh, cheap to just just make sure you get something that's uh, you can mark that with and it goes back in the same place because so many calls we've gotten like, hey, uh, I took this apart. Where do these caps go? Well, unfortunately, the OE didn't mark them. So, <laughs> Right, a common comment. Well, there's an arrow, so I know that it, which direction it points, but there's no numbers. Sometimes we can't help. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, just mark uh, mark those when you take them apart, and that'll be a simple uh, simple and easy when you go back to assembly. And this is probably one of the biggest ones we get is cylinder head thickness. Um, measuring that, you know, when you take it off the the and you're doing the disassembly, take it off the engine, doing disassembly of it. Just take a quick measurement on that head uh, and reference where you measure it from. So when you go back, uh, when you're milling it or looking for a different, or call us for a thickness, you know where that measurement was taken and what that measurement is. That is probably one of the specs that is most commonly not supplied by the OE. Uh, I'll say probably 80% of our head thicknesses do come from the field, which is our members taking measurements and giving them to us. If you're lucky, the industrial side has it. Yeah, but by and large, the comment that we see is do not resurface. Well, we know that they have tolerances on compression ratios. So the best thing to do is is to really find out the volume of the combustion chamber if you were building the engine and make sure that you meet the compression ratio. We know that that's not realistic uh, for every build, but there is definitely some room to work with. Yeah, there's some wiggle room there. Uh, I'll, I'll say when guys call, I think we kind of tell them, you know, well, how much do you have to take off? And most of them say minimal, a couple thousandths. And you can probably get away with that, no problem at all. I mean, I don't think they're running them that tight. Uh, they are running them tight, tighter than before, but not, not, not a couple thousandths tight. Right. Just keep in mind that an engine that's eight to one, and you take ten thousandths off of the head, in an engine that's 13 to one, which is not unheard of today, and you take 10 thousandths, you're gonna affect things more quickly. Right. Uh, it's the, that whole, the pond scenario. If if you got a, if it's a, a, a mini lake and you take 10,000 gallons out of it, are you gonna notice? You're gonna notice if you took that out of a pond that's the size of a swimming pool. Exactly. <laughs> And probably one area that's overlooked that, uh, as we were talking about this, actually came up and I had forgot about it, but no locations of plugs, uh, pipe or freeze plugs in the cylinder head. And that's that's a challenge uh, to answer as well. Uh, so that really lies heavily on whoever's doing the teardown uh, to make sure they capture that information because you're 
going to be hard pressed to go to any service information site, manual, whatever it may be, and find that information. It's just not published hardly ever. Ever. <laughs> Unfortunately, that is never published in there looking for. Uh, and we get calls on that. Uh, some guys take engines apart and say, hey, I got a pipe plug here. I don't know where it goes. You know, can you tell me where it goes? Well, unfortunately, the OE doesn't supply any kind of diagrams uh, that show where those plugs or freeze plugs go. And quite honestly, we have to give props to our production engine rebuilders because they bail us out a bunch. Hey, we know that they build 10.35 EcoBoost today or, or 40 LSs per day. And we ask those questions, and they're usually uh, more than willing to share that info and and maybe even give us some part numbers. Uh, so uh, thanks to them. Yeah, that's a good point, Chuck. Uh, good point to bring that up to where those guys, you know, as they do help us a lot. I won't say a lot, but when we do have questions on stuff like that or we're stuck on something, we reach out to those guys, and they are very, very helpful to us. Right. They see the volume. That that's That helps. Uh, one other thing on the cylinder head area is if you're taking the engine apart, <clears throat> one thing that we always did is if we had a bolt uh, that had a stud or one was longer than the others, we would always draw out just a square on a, a piece of paper and just mark the bolt locations and put a little asterisk next to that one, which would mean like if it's number 10, uh, that location would get a bolt with a stud uh, on the end of it or something like that. Uh, that's more towards the outside of the cylinder head where they're mounting a bracket or uh, some, something to that effect. Uh, but we would always draw that out um, and make notes on that when we were putting that back together. That way we knew exactly where that stud or different length bolt went. Yeah, the four liter Jeep, you know, even if you get into the cylinder block, that's one that'll challenge you. You've got studs in the mains, they're holding like a girdle, a windage tray direction of the oil filter adapter the four liter jeeps that had the plastic valve cover with a little cantilever locks which meant different head bolts there so sounds trivial until you try to put that stuff back together and then you're scratching your head oh where do we go from here yeah. <laughs> we go and call aera <laughs> <laughs> that's what we're here for <laughs> Uh, speaking of blocks, um, and this kind of relates back to one point of the cylinder heads is, again, note locations of pipe plugs and freeze plugs in the block. Uh, you know, sometimes they take special plugs that go in certain areas. Um, you just want to know where those are and, and where they go when you're going back to assembly. Right. Note number of uh, main caps. The, the LS, actually, it looks like a cap is on backwards. So definitely you want to note what goes where orientation is, does that point to the, the timing cover end or the rear seal end? So uh, be very cognizant of that again, especially in today when a lot of stuff's powder metal, it's a, a pressed, not machined part. Uh, they're, so they're so consistent. Well, we can make this thing fit either way and uh, it can get you in a, in trouble later. Yeah, definitely main caps are, uh, we just talked to a gentleman uh, out in Missouri. He was, uh, talked to him the other day, a guy brought a block in and didn't number the main caps and took them all off and didn't know where they went. And 
Uh, there was one main cap or two that were bad, so he brought him a new other set. Now they're just they're just trying to, you know, you put them on, you measure things, you make sure everything's correct. And uh, but number of those definitely when you take them apart is is huge uh, to make sure they go back in the right location. Uh, note location of any other special items that need to be removed. So when they're going back together during assembly, you know where it's supposed to be. That can range from a wide variety of things, but it was just something that we had talked about to where we think we need to make sure that we get things back in the right spot. Uh, putting it in the right spot could be big time trouble. So you just want to make sure you get it in the right location. Correct. Is that a switch pressure sending unit? It today with the complexity of engines and direct injection, high pressure, so forth, to make sure you put the right stuff in the right spot. <laughs> <laughs> uh, piston rod assembly. This is probably another one that we get a lot of calls on uh, on our tech line, Chuck, is how do the piston rods go together? And when I was in the shop, we just did one quick little thing is we would always hold the piston away from us with the front up, and we would just look at the locks and then write it down. It'd be front up locks right, and we would just write F-U-L-R, or front up locks left, and which would be F-U-L-L. It's just a simple thing that uh, actually it was in my dad's place that he kind of taught me was just take those, hold the piston in your hand with the front up and just look down where the locks are and make a note of it. Right, and we recently, well, I say recently, it's probably been a couple of years now, but we, ha we uh, had Mike Maverigan to work on an article for uh, piston rod orientation. So we have that in the Engine Professional Magazine. Uh, if anybody's interested, give us a shout and we'll look that up. Uh, because there are, if you don't have that information available to you, like we started with that tech bulletin, if it has a large chamfer on one side of the rod and not the other, well, that's likely going to go to your crankshaft radius. Uh, some things you can look at is if you were to lay the rod on a, on a flat surface and you flip it side to side and say the pin end is not offset with the big end. So we understand that that's neutral. Chamfer is equal on both sides. It's a powder metal rod. So there's no balance pads on the small end or the big end. Probably doesn't matter. That said, you still want to have some uniformity. So look for an identifying characteristic that you could put all of the rods in in the same orientation. So the next guy that gets it doesn't think a buffoon put the thing together. So, I mean, you... You want some uniformity and consistency, and it helps you keep things straight, too, if if you do that. But if if you don't have the information, you don't have stuff marked, uh, there are ways to identify what will work. And we're more than happy to take those calls and, and help walk through it, do it all the time. And more and more, we're seeing more of these uh, fractured cap rods and the importance of getting those back to to assembly correctly um, is very critical. You're going to make an unpopular statement here too. If you accidentally turn the caps around wrong, it only takes them coming in contact with each other. You don't even have to apply much load. You're going to distort that unique. It's like a fingerprint. No two rods will ever, ever be the same. So if you put the cap on wrong, it's junk. Can you get it to, to tighten up and measure okay? Yes. It will never be exactly the same. If you lose the 
contact surface area though because you did damage some of that you may get it to measure right but who's to say that now since i've lost that contact area that i can maintain the clamping force and it won't back off and fall apart so did that cause you to have a rod make a window in the side of a block so on a caution you know i would uh, err on the side of caution and pitch them nobody wants to hear that that's money but that's the safe thing to do it's a lot cheaper to replace a rod than it is to replace a whole engine <laughs> by the time you do the labor work and all that stuff you know if there was a failure on something like that it's easier to like you say just just start from scratch and start over and get a different rod and i think most do but again we've we've talked about this lately hey we know that new people are coming in and this is to share information you know some veterans are saying hey that i know this stuff but not everybody's a a veteran they're not a 10-year veteran or 20 or 30 year veteran we have and, and we're happy for that we're happy to see the that new people are coming into the industry and have questions mm -hmm. Moving on here to timing chains, that's kind of a pretty important one as well to make sure you get everything back to assembly uh, correctly. Tensioners, um, all kinds of things involved in a timing set nowadays. For sure. Uh, take pictures um, is extremely helpful when it comes to the complexity of the timing systems now because you, some of the information that you get maybe lacking the images that you really need to see so if you have the opportunity we know you don't always have that opportunity but you have the opportunity to take pictures it's probably the easiest thing they always said a picture just says a thousand words and it can do a lot for you speaking of pictures uh one of the tools that we had talked about for the machine shop is a camera uh, most people have it on their smartphone today um it's very quick, it's easy. Uh, just take a picture during disassembly with your phone or a camera and leave it with that work order. Um, some guys will actually, I know one gentleman up in Wisconsin that we talked to, he got some tablets for his shop and he makes a folder for each engine that comes in. He takes a picture of all four sides, tops, uh, takes a picture of everything during disassembly. And then when they're going back to assembly, they just reference, they can pull that up on a tablet and look at those pictures and make sure that everything goes back correctly. It's pretty simple. He's got a couple hundred dollars invested in a, in a cover and the tablet. It just makes things uh, nice and easy to reference when you're going back together for, for assembly. And video. Uh, we oh. have a shop in Texas that sends us videos pretty regularly and it's super helpful. Uh, Anybody like, with your phone, with your tablet, whatever, it's so easy to capture a video now. And you might be able to just record yourself taking, so I have notes and I have image all at once. So just keep that in mind. Yeah, video would be good too. It's uh, You get a good view of the whole engine as you're walking around it and you can stop and, and look at things and press play again and move a little farther and see how things go and... and uh, how to go back during assembly. So it's a camera taking pictures or video, a uh, big plus in our industry, I think. Right. I think uh, just this week, we actually yesterday, we got a video from an international member on a Caterpillar head. Yep. 
went chamber to chamber. Hey, what causes this failure? Well, that about wraps it up for this episode, Chuck. Uh, oh, one thing here, uh, we got a note here is, uh, especially train your employees. Uh, you kind of talked about that earlier with some new guys coming on and, and making sure that they're trained the way you want things done during, during teardown is, is crucial. That way you get everything done correctly. So true, Steve. And, and something else I'd like to add to that. One of the things that we, we tend to do, I see it in forums, uh, comment, Hey, what do you, what do you pay a guy who doesn't really know anything, uh, that I'm just going to put in tear down. And th those two comments are, are, are kind of scary. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to put a guy back there who doesn't know anything who can, it's kind of like pushing a snowball off of a cliff and it's just going to pick up steam. So if he doesn't know anything or you don't have time to, to train him and give him good information, then he's going to, okay. So it's not important that I keep these caps aligned. It's not important that I take this big hammer and chisel and screw up a freeze plug bore. Those people can, cause a lot of chaos out in the machining area because now you have to fix a lot of things that probably shouldn't have been fixed, had to be fixed. Uh, so th those are extremely valuable people. It's a great place to learn. You get the cause and effect stuff. Okay. Why is this, this journal all pretty and shiny and this one's all torn and has metal embedded in it. Uh, it's a great place to learn, but it's also a hypercritical position because they can save you so much in the machine shop end and the overall quality of the product that you produce. So uh, those people are super valuable uh, casting repair and so forth. So just because they get the dirtiest in the shop uh, doesn't mean that that's a bad position. Uh, you know, your failure analysis people, Anytime you tear down an old dirty engine, uh, you're learning a lot. Now, there, I know that many people who do failure analysis have probably far surpassed the point where they were an expert engine builder. Now, I need to know that interrelationship of all parts, cause and effect. So, uh, give your employees due diligence in training them, and uh, let's try to not... Uh, create an environment that sees teardown guys as, you know, knuckle dragging uh, gorillas because that's a very, very important part of uh, what we do. Yeah, I'd say it's just as important as the guy that does the assembly work or or the machine work because this the the disassembler is really setting the tone for the whole job. Yeah, and depending on the environment that you're in, uh, so there are engine builders. And there are engine assembly people. And oftentimes you get a guy who assembles engines who doesn't really look at all the parts and doesn't look for problems and cause and effect. That's a prima donna thing. Hey, well, I built this. It's like a, you know, a guy who hangs a jewelry on a, on a necklace. Okay. He's a jeweler because he bought somebody's <laughs> jewel and hung it on a rope. Uh, so th there is a difference. Uh, the skills speak for themselves. 
So those are just a couple things uh, in closing here that we had thought that might be good for listeners to make some notes about just when you're disassembling things, just make sure you take notes, take pictures, take videos like we all talked about earlier. Uh, that way when you are building or assembling the engine again, uh, you have something to reference to where you know where parts go and where they belong. Uh, it is important to take that time at the beginning and make sure that you get things in the right locations. One thing I do want to mention is we have eclipsed the 11,000 engine mark in our database. So we do have a lot of this information in there. Uh, cylinder head heights, uh, you know, where valve seals go, spring colors, that type of thing. Uh, timing diagrams, piston to rod orientation. We do have a lot of that information within our program, but there are some times where we don't. And that's where I want to stress that even if we do have it, take the five minutes or 10 minutes to make notes, take the time to measure that stuff. That way you've got a reference for you when you go back to assembly. Um, I had an instance the other day where a gentleman called on a, on a head height and it wasn't matching what we had because they made a design change that we didn't really know about. And it was it was off like a hundred thousandths or something like that. So I'm glad he measured it. Obviously you're not gonna take a hundred thousandths off a head, but uh, it, was a, it was good that he measured it and gave us that casting number so we can make notes of it. So yeah, if you do run across something within our program, if you're a member of AERA and use our Process Pro and you don't see something there, take a measurement of it, send it to us. We'll be glad to, uh, to add it. Um, what we do is we just take, uh, we make a note of it and then we wait for other members to call in with that same information before we actually publish it. So we kind of verify that it's a good spec, uh, within a couple thousands here or there and, and then we'll publish it in our program. One thing I'd also like to mention here is, uh, if you'd like to get a hold of Chuck and I with any kind of questions or comments or topics that you'd like to hear about. Feel free to reach out to us. We got a new email address for the podcast. Took us a little bit of time, but we finally thought, hey, why can't we have people email us, Chuck? <laughs> <laughs> and that email address is eppodcast at aera.org. And that again is eppodcast at aera.org. Feel free to email us uh, any kind of comments or questions you got about our podcast. Any kind of topics that you want to hear about, we'd be glad to uh, take those into consideration because uh, we're always looking for good content. All right, Chuck, anything else you got to talk about? I guess we're getting close to the end here. I think you're uh, knocking off the bullet points, Steve. Perfect. Well, it is December. So uh, from all of us here at AERA and our podcast here, we would definitely like to wish everybody a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Hope that uh, everybody has a good holiday. Uh, thank goodness 2021 or 2020 is coming to an end and hopefully 2021 will be a lot better. <laughs> yes, we do. Steve. Yes, we do. So if you're, uh, please subscribe to our podcast. You can uh, check us out at any of your favorite podcast listings, or you can also subscribe to our podcast at podcast.engineprofessional.com. That's about all we got, Chuck. So I think we'll, like I said, we'll wish everybody a Merry Christmas, Happy New Year. And I can honestly say this, Chuck, I'll talk to you next year. Talk to you next year.
Everybody have a good holiday.